This is Money and Meaning, a podcast featuring stories about unlocking the potential of global markets to drive impact. My name is Lindsay Smalling. So let's just set some context for this interview. First context is, Rodney, you and I have known each other for four or five years now. Uh, Second context is it's March 19th, and we are smack in the middle of the world realizing it's a pandemic. Uh, So that's sort of the the shadow over our conversation today, for sure. Um, And so even though, you know, I don't I don't want to focus on that throughout the interview, but I was just thinking about, you know, um, you had Common Future. That's a recent rebrand. I love the name Common Future. The previous name, Bali, Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. How are you thinking about Common Future, local economies? I mean, what are the conversations like right now among your staff and your board relevant to your your mission and, and the folks you support and work with? Yeah, it's an interesting time, obviously. Um, beyond interesting, I think what's happening with my team, with the folks that we work with, that we are in service to, um, my board. I think this is a, a recognition of the need for greater imagination, and I think that sort of encapsulates quite a bit, you know, the work of Common Future. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is, we're in when you see what's happening with coronavirus, the impact it's having everywhere the social impacts, the economic impacts. We're doing a lot of thinking about response and recovery and rebuilding. And I think for us, we're thinking about what's the reimagining aspects of this as well, right? Um, I think right now, a lot of things that we didn't think would ever happen (laughs) seem like they need to happen now, whether that's universal healthcare, we're really seeing how our systems are exposed and are vulnerable in moments like this. And so I think the work of Common Future and everyone that we work with has really been geared toward what is possible and what's next. And so uh, we're unfortunately, all of us are grappling at this moment with a worldwide pandemic that is forcing us to really rethink a lot of our yeah. you know, status quo behavior. In a weird way, like I'm always a Pollyanna, like I always see the silver lining. So I'm trying to check myself in the middle of this. But there are ways that this is just taken what was maybe like linear or sort of incremental changes and just created this huge, nothing is as you thought it was, anything is possible, everything is impossible. I mean, it's just a totally different scenario. And I can't help but see how that's an opportunity if we treat it as such. And I think we have to. And I hope that what I don't want us to do is think only about recovery and only about rebuilding. Right. We don't want to rebuild the same system. Right. We don't want to rebuild the same thing. I think we need to be yeah. able to like lean into the fact that as the systems that we've built are literally deteriorating in front of us, that we need to be thinking differently. And so to your point, I, I see the silver lining in that. It's unfortunate that I had to take this type of thing to do yeah. it. Um, to get people to really think about it. And of course, at the same time, Lindsay, you know, so many, there are so many folks that are still thinking, oh, business as usual at this moment, right? They're still thinking this will pass. And, you know, a week from now, we'll be able to change or two months from now, things will be different, you know, things will be different when it relates to the pandemic, but also the same as it goes to business as usual. And so I, you know, I encourage all of us who are sort of the dreamers to, 
you know, kind of continuously put forth new visions for what is possible, particularly in this moment, because if we can't do it right now, uh, when might we do it? Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess I want to go back to a little bit of like your story and how you got to where you are now um, in the sense that we talk in this podcast about different ways that we can unlock the potential of markets to drive impact. But markets aren't always the first place people start when they think about impact. A lot of times it's activism. It's um, sometimes philanthropy is the way you drive impact. And you've, you know, had a past that was in, you know, involved with activists, involved with philanthropists. But where did you start to sort of see this power of markets, entrepreneurship, investment, business, as a way that you wanted to drive change on on issues? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think about someone like Clara Miller, um, who I know that the SOCAP audience is very familiar with. Um, used to be at Nonprofit Finance Fund, uh, which actually I'm now on the board of, and was obviously leading the Heron Foundation. And so, you know, what Claire Miller would talk about and often talks about is the fact that uh, we say impact is always a, is either a negative or a positive impact, right? And so the question isn't whether or not, you know, for me and for many others, but the question isn't about like, you know, markets creating impact, it's the type of impact, right? And so I think every single day, we actually see the impact and power of markets. And so then it becomes, can we actually leverage that power to create the type of impact that we want to see in the world? In your personal journey, like, was that always obvious to you? Is there, are there moments, like, was it hearing from Clara? Or I'm always curious how people came to this sort of like, yeah, the markets have impact, positive and negative. I would say that for me, um, so I'm from Baltimore, Maryland which really, I think, represents um, so much of what systemic injustice looks like in place, um, whether we're talking about like, mass incarceration, where we're talking about post-industrialization. Um, so much of it is really manifested in Baltimore City. And I think really where it came up close for me, Lindsay, was I was working in economic and workforce development um, for a nonprofit that does great policy work, public policy work, particularly um, that impacts communities that are hard hit by um, incarceration um, and criminal justice. And one of the recognitions I had was that, you know, I was working on policies and programs that would create good, solid jobs for individuals that had been mostly that folks who had been in prison and were able to get out. And what I recognized was that I was effectively leading them to, even though they were quote unquote good jobs, the types of opportunities that the businesses that they were working in were actually not in the long term or even with the intermediate term, um, quality opportunities that could, where you could have a, a, a family sustaining wages and actually start to create you know, wealth for yourself and these sort of things. And effectively, I realized that on one hand, there are these businesses that are making it hard for people to actually have thriving livelihoods, but we could also create enterprises that actually were all about <laughs> uh, creating livelihood, positive livelihoods for folks. And so that's where it sort of clicked for me was witnessing how many enterprises and businesses that were really just not treating individuals with dignity in their day-to-day life and their work. And so... I saw like how that could be a thing and actually started beginning to help to create um, and support these social enterprises 
that were effectively about advancing individuals that have been most impacted by uh, really challenging social issues. And so seeing- Co-founded Impact Hub Baltimore. Co-founded Impact Hub Baltimore, yeah. Um, worked at the Knight Foundation and, you know, you can't see, but I'm actually wearing the Be Me t-shirt. And so Be Me, uh, which started out as a, an initiative at the Knight Foundation, but is now its own uh, not-for-profit um, led by our phenomenal leader, Travian Shorters. And what Beamy's really about was resourcing African-American men who were already doing really positive work, particularly through entrepreneurship and enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of your work, Impact Hub Baltimore, Invested Impact, becoming a Bali fellow, leadership of Bali has, you know, I think the through line through all of that, that is something that I would credit you with sort of putting a really fine point on in my mind. I'd heard about the racial wealth gap thought about it to some extent. But when you started, I I feel like in early 2018, I started hearing you pair together these different reports and facts around the U.S. rapidly advancing to a future where people of color are the majority. The median wealth of African Americans is trending towards zero by 2053. And if you add those two things together, what does that mean for all of us when the majority of our neighbors have zero net worth. I mean, it crystallized for me, and I'm sure all of your work has led to that becoming something that you just had to shout from the rooftops to say, why is, why is this not the, the most important issue? Yeah. And again, that's, that's really why, you know, we're now common future. Uh, because what we really want to make sure that people understand is that when we look at economic challenges for African-Americans, Latino, immigrants, women, it's not, we typically think, those are problems that those groups need to solve for themselves, right? And actually, that's not the case because it's a shared challenge. And so it could be a shared opportunity as well. And the reality of it, going back to what we were talking about the pandemic right now, you know, African-Americans in the U.S. still have not uh, recovered, quote unquote, recovered from the 2008 recession because of home ownership, et cetera. And given what we're likely to see with, businesses because of the pandemic right now in the U.S., it's very likely that African-Americans in particular and other minority groups are going to be disproportionately impacted on the long term in terms of things. So if we're seeing that African-Americans still haven't recovered from from the 2008 recession, and now we're having this pandemic, disproportionately it's going to impact people of color. And I raise that because it's really demonstrating how we all need to be do- working on this collectively. Um, this is a collective challenge. It's a collective opportunity as well. And so I think, you know, being able to really recognize that, that again, it's about our collective future. It's not about just the, the future for African-Americans, Latino immigrant groups, the, new, the next majority that will be coming online and that's already coming online in the U.S., Right. Um, But it's really about what does it mean for all of us? Yeah. And I think, you know, you've talked about that those who are closest to the problem are are also the closest to the solutions. But the problem is they're the farthest away from the power and the resources. And that if we're really, you know, maybe in the wake of this, trying to create an, an inclusive economy, how does that really look like every stakeholder shaping the economy that we're rebuilding? And those conversations just often those voices aren't all around the same table. 
So, yeah, I mean, I guess, are you seeing from sort of even before this in the rebrand of Common Future, in the launch of the Bridge Fellows new pilot that you guys are doing, that willingness for the resources and the power to look for solutions from the people closest to the problems? I think so. You know, I'm, I'm hesitant to say go 100% gung-ho on it, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> Are they all there, Rodney? They're with you? 100%. Yeah, and so that's, that's certainly not the case. But you know what's interesting about it? So, you know, Common Future has this interesting, we play this interesting role. You know, we're sort of a bridge builder. And when you look at the diversity of our network, yes, in terms of like socioeconomic status, ethnicity, race, gender, et cetera, but actually in terms of how people view the economy. And what I mean by that is we have a number of folks who are sort of like more free market libertarian type people. Uh, We have folks who would describe themselves as post-capitalists. We have a range of people within our network that have just many different views on how the economy should operate and what our role is in in it. Um, And so the reason I bring that up is that what I find so interesting about this this idea that those who are most impacted by a problem are the ones that are closest to the solution, you can word it in different ways, but people really understand that just as a concept, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, no matter if you're a post-capitalist or no matter if you're a libertarian, you might conclude differently on like how you got there. You know, There might be different ways on how you got there, but it's actually something that's resonant for people. Uh, and I bring that up also because what I find really interesting since we've relaunched as Common Future is we're working with individuals and institutions that, you know, I'm surprised are interested, you know, uh, I have to check my own self and bias on this, um, that I'm surprised that they're even interested in, in engaging in this type of way, right? And oftentimes it's for radically different reasons. Um, one theme that comes up is that when people start to work in this type of way, they realize it's more effective. So, you know, there are people in our network who are, you know, social justice, economic justice, you know, fierce social justice warriors. And so they're always going to be on that track. And then you've got folks who are just saying, wow, you know, it actually makes more sense for me as an investor and a philanthropist to work more directly with folks who are impacted by these challenges most directly. Um, (laughs) It's more effective. You know, I'm making better grant-making decisions and making better investment decisions. And so if we can actually kind of bring that together and sort of make that much more cohesive, I think it's a really powerful way to move about in the world. And so with this new group of fellows that you launched, the Bridge Fellows, this is different from the normal Bali Fellowship. Is that right? So these folks are local economy common leaders. Common future, so, common future. Sorry, but but the previous Bali Fellowship, I mean, which is sort of the legacy that you inherited with Bali, the Bridge Fellows are different, right? This this is a new pilot is the way you all positioned it. Can you talk a little bit about what's sort of new about this, this fellowship? Yes. Yeah, so actually what's interesting about it, Lindsay, is that um, so we've had prior to the launch of the Bridge Fellows program, We've had uh, five cohorts of a fellowship, and effectively, we took all the information and data that was collected from all of our fellows, which is about 100 individuals across the U.S. and Canada, and we're doing remarkable work in local economies. And big things that we changed. One, we're ensuring that folks are receiving financial resources um, as they see fit, and so we're making grant awards 
you know, general operating support to these fellows. We're also very specific and clear about the target of the body of work. So the British Fellows Program is really geared in targeting um, communities in the South, uh, in the U.S. South. And the reason why we're doing that is because for many of the things we've already discussed, Lindsay, in fact, that prioritizing folks of color in communities that are oftentimes overlooked and definitely under-resourced, under-invested in. So that's not necessarily unique in terms of you know, how we've gone about our programming previously with our fellowship, except for to say that having that level of specific action is a big shift. Um, additionally, what we want to be able to do and what we're going to be able to do with the Bridge Fellows Program is not only re- resource these individuals, but also position them in ways in which they can directly influence grant-making and impact-investing institutions. And so, so that is a significant shift as well. We're tying it more deeply and connecting it to our other bodies of work that are about influencing and informing, educating, consulting, philanthropists, and impact investors. Yeah, I just had the chance before we were all on lockdown um, to go to New Orleans for the Camelback Guardian Summit. And, you know, a lot of that is focused on closing the racial wealth gap. But with their framing around guardianship and inheritance and what we pass down and what we inherit, the conversation, the thing that really struck me was this piece of, it's not just about passing wealth down, because wealth can be lost within a generation, but passing down power. And that that concept, uh, one of the speakers, Dr. Pamela Jolly, defined power as organized money and organized people. And it's interesting with the fellows program, I think you're conscious of the way that you know, funding an individual versus a cohort creates different sort of systems of power um, and helps people organize towards common goals in a different way. But I'm curious how you, you know, that piece of wealth versus power. Yeah, it's interesting because I think particularly in the U.S. context, um, we oftentimes conflate wealth with power. Absolutely. Yeah. And typically that, you know, it, it kind of plays out on our national stage, right? That said, particularly for communities of color, I wish I was at the the Camelback convening in New Orleans. Um, but the reality is that wealth is so precarious for communities of color, especially. Right. It, it oftentimes is not just a generation that's lost. <laughs> it's sooner than that. It's faster than that. And so I think the the decoupling of wealth and power is important. And, and maybe the cultivating of both. Not just focus on cultivating wealth, but also focus on cultivating power. And I think this is the thing, and this is where for a common future, I think our perspective on this is, is, you know, more specific in terms of, for us, it's not just about wealth, it's about community wealth and economic power building. Mm -hmm. And so it's not to say that we don't want to see individuals accrue more wealth and that they can pass down a family and power and things like that. But actually, it's about how do you actually cultivate community wealth, shared prosperity, shared power within place and communities. That is the perspective that we take. And that is where our investment in terms of how we operate our programs, how we do the work that we do, that is sort of the lens that we take. And I think that is really important to focus on and make sure that's a distinct perspective in terms of how we look at it at Common Future. Can you give an example of that? So what that looks like for a fellow or a cohort building that community and economic power? 
Yeah. So, I mean, you can look at, there are so many wonderful folks in our network to, to draw from, but um, I think about someone like Tim Lampkin in Clarksdale, Mississippi, his organization, um, Higher Purpose Co., which is an entirely, you know, African-American-led institution. You know, Clarksdale is a town of, uh, I think, 17,000 people um, or so. It's about 90 minutes away from Memphis. And they have this remarkable group of leaders, you know, across generations, right? And Tim and his colleagues, the leaders that he works with, are very clear about not just supporting one or two or three entrepreneurs. It's about actually having a holistic approach to building a collective, a community that is knitted together, that is collaborative, that has a coherent vision for where they can be, um, so that it benefits everyone or more people, certainly. And so what Higher Purpose Co., for example, they've created a network to support financing needs for African-American entrepreneurs in their communities. Um, and this is across the state of, of Mississippi. And there, there's a very clear lens in terms of creating community wealth within Mississippi that creates benefits for African-Americans in particular. Got it. Yeah. So... I want to shift gears here a little bit. We've talked about Common Future, the rebrand, the Bridge Fellows. Um, I'm such a big fan of all of your work. Um, but parallel to the different organizations you've been a part of, I feel like you've really cultivated this thought leadership voice and platform. And you're one of the only sort of long form writers, I feel like, in this space that I really, every time there's a new post from you, I like, well, take you could write it and it would take me 20 minutes to read it i would absolutely just drop everything and take that 20 minutes to read it because they're provocative rodney and i remember the first the first one of those where i was like wait a second like i may have heard the name rodney foxworth before but the need for black rage in philanthropy that piece i think you know it was referenced in the new york times it was i mean it really got a lot of attention what sort of inspires those moments of saying, I've got to get this out, and there's a lot here. And I let you reference so many other thinkers and writers and authors. I mean, they're just so multidimensional. Um, so that's just me being a fan. Um, I had to put that in there. But you know, what? How do you approach that thought leadership piece and and your inspiration for putting that stuff out there? Well, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> you bringing this into the conversation. You know, it's it's something that. Um, I would say personally, I'm very uncomfortable with with just like general like being out in public, right? And I think the things that I write about, they're deeply personal in the sense that um, the reason why I do this work is because it's very personal for me. Um, you know, I grew up working class, black in West Baltimore. You know, I've had friends and family that have um, experienced so many things, whether it's challenges with criminal justice, um, health concerns that are disproportionately impacting minority folks, you know, living very economically precarious lives. And so for me, it's actually, I never think about it necessarily as thought leadership, you know? Um, I think about it as, you know, like my favorite author, James Baldwin, and thinking about what is the, po what is the power that the written word can have um, to influence and have people interrogate certain things either about themselves or like the systems that we live in every day. And I think this is one of the things that 
for our sector, however you want to think about it, impact investing, social entrepreneurship, economic development, economic inclusion, we've arrived to a place where it's very technocratic, right? And so, you know, people want to know, what's the solution? Like, Rodney, what's the solution, right? Give me the three steps. <laughs> Give me the three to six action steps to solve this thing. And for me, it's not necessarily about the steps. It's about the process and how people come to understand how things are working and have an openness to interrogate like the things that they say. We talked about this with coronavirus, right? Like this is demonstrating the things that we thought were impossible actually are possible. And all the things that we thought were just sort of the things that need to happen every single day, maybe we can reconsider that, right? And so for me, it's, I think it's really important for us to have sort of like a, an intellectual and almost spiritual understanding of the conditions in which we're all living in, the systems that we operate within. Um, that to me, I think once you, once people start to have that interrogation, start to have that sort of, I don't want to call it a wake up call, but begin to start asking certain types of questions all the other technocratic things get solved really quickly, right? Like that's <laughs> the harder piece yeah. isn't actually the quote unquote solution piece of it. It's actually mindset, how people view something. And so that's why, you know, I, I've, when you, you cite the piece, the need for black rage and philanthropy, I wrote that for myself, but I wrote that for folks that I knew were experiencing the same thing. Does that make sense? It's sort of, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I'm trying to like get people to think a certain way. I was like, you know, there's an audience that is feeling this and I think it will resonate. And that's typically how I think about things. Now, my team, I'm sure, would love for me to write more like three action step things, <laughs> you know, six action step things. Um, but that's, you know, that's just not really how my, my mind works. It's not to say that, um, you know, action is not important. It's just more about I'm, I'm really wanting us to make sure that we're thinking really deeply about how we're operating in the world. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, pulling from from these authors, from other folks, there's, there is such a thoughtfulness in these posts. But I want to just say there's also, you know, that need for Black Rage, the attention-getting headline is not an attention-getting headline. You're really highlighting how urgent it is, the James Baldwin quote that you started with, um, to be a Negro in this country and be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all of the time and then not to let it destroy you. And you wrote that in 2016. I just have to wonder, has what's your relationship with justifiable rage these days? Oh, it's still there for me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's sort of, you know, here's the thing. Um, especially in these moments, I think it's really important for us to think about like who is making decisions, what is their proximity to the actual challenges. And it's not to say that others can't do it, but if you actually look at say the nonprofit sector in terms of leadership or philanthropy, the leadership of institutions within philanthropy, for example, the folks who are making the decisions, boards of trustees and et cetera, are very distant from the actual challenges that their institutions are, you know, tasked with solving, if that's how they look at it, um, or at least mitigating. And, and so, you know, we oftentimes, practitioners always ask, why aren't people angry enough? You know, where's the urgency? It's really hard to have urgency when something doesn't impact you, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's, yeah. And by that, I mean, impact you directly. And so I think 
you know, my relationship with justifiable rage, I think, you know, we should, we should be more comforted by the fact that people, we should want people to be some level of anger, right? Some level Absolutely. of rage. Absolutely. No, I'm just, I guess I'm, I read that from 2016 and yeah. I, part of me thinks you must be so much more enraged now and then part of me is like well i'm not i'm not you so i'm just curious if that's you know it's interesting you know i wouldn't say that i'm any angrier i think it's what i've learned to do Lindsay, and it goes back to that quote like not allowing anger rage to be all consuming and so for me it's i don't think i'm any more enraged i i think that that level has probably been pretty consistent uh for me do you Um, feel like having this position that you have, the leadership of Common Future versus Impact Hub Baltimore Invested Impact, do you feel like you're in a position to affect more of the the change and influence the people closer to those resources? You know, I think so. And so it's it's, it's all relative. So I believe I do. I think the the reason why I do what I do is because of the remarkable leaders in our network um, who are folks who are oftentimes very much overlooked and work so hard to get the resources that they receive. And so for me, it's, I do believe I have uh, more influence than I certainly did in 2016 when that piece was written. And it's a, it's a responsibility that I take very seriously, right? And so I think it's really important to kind of maintain that edge. And I'm certainly, my, my edge is there. <laughs> um, because oftentimes, I mean, this is how often, this is how systems operate, right? You you begin to get certain access to power, proximity to influence, and et cetera, and you know you change. You're, you're you get a little bit more relaxed, right? Um, and you know, that for me, I, I I take that very seriously about like how do I bring to bear what I can within my within my role, and hopefully, you know, I'm able to do that um, even more. I mean. I've been in my role for two years. We obviously had a, a pretty significant shift um, in direction and, you know, taking over from a wonderful founding executive director. And so it's interesting, 2020 is, is feeling like this is the organization that, um, you know, that we've been tasked with building over the last two years. Yeah, no, it's really, it's a, it's a new start. I think I came into this year feeling like very aware that it was a new decade and then, global pandemic. Things are really new. I don't think we can say that anything about this next decade will feel the same, but whether we sort of carry how much of the the past we carry into the future versus how much we're able to really use this as a moment to pivot is on my mind and sounds like it's on yours too. And I love the imagination framing alongside the urgency and the rage. It's it's all important. I think that's where I think people might misconstrue it um, where one is more important than the other, right? You, we need all of it. And that's where, again, I just emphasize, I, I, you know, in this moment, I, we need to respond, we need to recover, we need to rebuild, and we need to imagine something different all at the same time. Right. <laughs> at the same right. time. It's not, it's not that we need to do one more than the other. We actually need to be doing all of them because when your local economy is being impacted the way that it is, we need fast, responsive recovery dollars. We need our government to step up, right? We need to see philanthropy where it can step in and act differently. And all, and all the things that are happening right now within this pandemic is actually proving out that, like, these things are possible, right? Yeah. <laughs> things that people said they could not do before, they're doing it right now. Um, and so 
hopefully we don't need to have another pandemic to demonstrate that, but we can actually, you know, do this consistently, make it a part of the status quo and continuously improve time after time. Well, I'm sure you'll have lots more to say as this whole thing evolves and I will be the first person to read it. Uh, and we'll be following Common Future and the Bridge Fellows program very closely. Anything else that um, our listeners should be looking out for from Common Future or, or the network of folks that you engage with? Yeah, I think, you know, the Bridge Fellows is really just a start of um, how we're going to be working. I mean, we're developing a number of different types of partnerships that are similar um, to Bridge Fellows, but at different scale, right? And so I think, you know, keep an eye out for, you know, things we'll be announcing over time. And, you know, one of the things that is a significant kind of pivot for us organizationally is actually seeing ourselves as an aggregator of resources um, that can then be deployed into our network, you know, folks that are just doing remarkable things. And so uh, we had not been doing that work previously, right? And so that is actually a pretty substantive part of what we're going to, what we're doing now as Common Future. And so seeing us in that way, um, and we'll continuously work with philanthropists, impact investors to really recognize different ways of investing, different ways of like leveraging philanthropic capital. Wonderful. Thank you, Rodney. Thanks, Lindsay. Please recommend the Money and Meaning podcast to your friends and colleagues. Rate us wherever you listen and follow us at SoCap Markets. All of our past podcasts and blogs are available at socialcapitalmarkets.net. And we look forward to hearing from you. How are you unlocking the potential of global markets to drive impact?